Good afternoon. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And hey, thanks for coming on today. Um, we got some great, well, we got a great show, first of all. Fantastic show. I'm super excited about this one. Um, but of course, we've got some stuff happening in the news. A serious Hurricane Ian uh, uh, created just a massive amount of damage down in Florida, and we'll discuss that a little bit. Um, we have uh, Dr. David Krause is coming uh, on as our guest today, so we're real excited to have him. And uh, we'll be right back with you just in a moment after we get a brief message from our sponsors. So many of you are watching the show uh, via our portals. Of course, our uh, home base is healthyindoors.com. It's where we have our magazine, Healthy Indoors, uh, digital monthly publication, and a bunch of other stuff, a lot of uh, back-end uh, information there. Um, but all, you probably most of you are watching us on the Healthy Indoors online global community. Uh, this is a platform we launched a while back, and our um, you know, it's just a very unique platform that you, uh, if you're not part of it, you should check it out. Um, it, it, it allows you to network, uh, meet with other individuals uh, around the industry in, in like professions or various vertical professions. Um, it's, it's just a great platform. We're, we're going to be doing a lot more there. Uh, one of the things that we have been doing lately is uh, what's called, this is for members of the Healthy Indoors community, it's called the, the Ask Me Anything events. Uh, we just completed our last one uh, yesterday, actually. We had uh, Jeff May uh, was on there for an hour answering questions with a live audience. So that, that was actually a really great time, very informative. Again, all of you uh, members of the community have access to all those recordings. You can get to that, and that's excellent. Um, so without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce our guest. So he is shouldn't actually need introduction. He's no stranger to our program. He's probably the reigning champion of appearances. I'm pretty certain he is. Uh, but Dr. David Krauss is a certified industrial hygienist. He spent many years working in public health as the uh, head IAQ guy for the state of Florida. I, He's going to really laugh when he comes on in the way I mentioned that. But he's the founder of HC3, uh, which is uh, health uh, care uh, consulting and contracting uh, based in Tallahassee, Florida. David has been involved and instrumental in so many documents and committees in this in this industry on so many topics. Uh, just has a wealth of knowledge. And uh, hey, he's a nice guy. You know, so David, how are you? Well, thanks for having me, Bob. I'm, I'm doing well. And thank goodness I uh, have a. Uh, Unlike most of the state, uh, not much an impact from the hurricanes. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really fortunate, Dave. That you're, uh, you know, you're out of the out of the bandwidth of most of. You said just sunny sunny day there today, right? Yeah, it's funny how they work. Uh, the way they spin, that actually drew nice, cool, dry air down from the north. So um, Tallahassee was spared the uh, the uh, any adverse effects from the hurricane this time. So I guess maybe, we'll, you know, we'll lead off with with this story um, because, it, you know, it's current, currently still developing. Um, you know, obviously the uh, category, uh, the storm has now been downgraded to a tropical storm, correct, for the time being? 
Yeah, it's it's likely to gain some strength as it gets back out over the Atlantic and uh, before it hits the Atlantic seacoast. Um, but, you know, right now in Florida, we're really looking at the disaster after the disasters um, with, uh, you know, carbon monoxide issues that inevitably arise, uh, electrical, uh, you know, problems from electrocutions and, and, and hazards from reentering these areas. So, uh, you know, the danger isn't over for folks. And, and I hope everybody who's uh, both responding and affected by this uh, takes uh, takes care. You know, and, and that's a that's a I think a big point to make is that the actual hurricane itself, you know, is is moving through. It's no longer considered a hurricane. Uh, but what we're dealing with is the aftermath. Right. And the, and the water, uh, you know, the flooding and the, and the issues that occur with that are substantial. Right. And it's this this isn't something that just passes over and, hey, it's all great. That's correct. That's correct. Inevitably, we, we went through this um, in 2018 uh, with Hurricane Michael in the Panhandle. And, um, you know, it was many months of uh, injuries, hazards and fatalities that uh, occurred after the hurricanes. So, you know, you're expecting that in a very highly populated area of South and Central Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the impacts are, are both acute, you know, the short term. You're going to have the recovery efforts, you know, heat stress and um, you know, medical emergencies. The roadways to the hospitals are blocked. Uh, you have inevitably uh, carbon monoxide issues that uh, arise from generator use. And then beyond that, uh, kind of what we'll talk about later today are the impacts on the infrastructure, uh, including our uh, drinking water systems and uh, uh, healthcare systems. Sure. And that's, you know, again, these are things that just don't get cleared up immediately. You know, af after one of these uh, catastrophic events, there's, uh, I mean, months, if not years before everything's back where it should be. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we certainly, you know, in South Florida, uh, several, several uh, hurricanes ago um, with some of the heat stress and problems with uh, assisted living facilities and nursing homes, there was a requirement in the state to have all nursing homes and long-term care facilities uh, have generators installed and required uh, and they're required fuel to run them to protect the patients and the people who stay there. So we'll see how well that um, program serves the, uh, the the people in need. And so they're not uh, basically sitting there for weeks or months on end um, suffering from, uh, you know, heat-induced stress and other medical emergencies related to that so. and in florida september you know late september going into october still hot down there right it's not i mean I, i'm up here in syracuse so for me we're freezing our butts off now so i'm not you know air conditioning is the furthest thought from my mind right now um but down there not so much right you're still in cooling mode exactly exactly well well in in the central and south part of the state you're in cooling mode 12 months of the year so uh especially after a hurricane where a lot of uh you know uh Heat and humidity are certainly pulled up from southern climes, um, and the humidity is, is I guess, one of the toughest part is to uh, to make sure that you know because that that just magnifies the the heat that people are exposed to. So, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be a tough one, um, and it's it's a it's a narrow corridor. Everything has to be brought down, uh, basically one of two two uh, two roads, I seventy five or I ninety five. And we'll see how much of those were, were impacted. And of course, uh, Fort Myers, they they lost um, some bridges and, and other infrastructure necessary to even get to some of the um, uh, barrier islands. 
So, and, and they did call for an evacuation of what 2.5 million people. And I know you and I had a discussion about that yesterday. It's like, that's great to like, say, you know, get out of the way, you know, you're going to be fine, but moving 2.5 million people in a couple of days, logistically not the easiest thing in the world many people don't have the ability to transport themselves and don't have the funds to be able to you know where do they where do they transport to and where do they stay yeah i don't think you have yeah. 2.5 million open hotel rooms just sitting there waiting for them yeah and many of those areas that they would normally evacuate to were in the line of the hurricane themselves right. so uh you know we actually had some friends in in uh in the fort myers area who um one of them had uh recently had back surgery and just really couldn't um, effectively evacuate, and they wouldn't readmit him back to the hospital. So, kind of stuck. Luckily, it turned out well for them. They, you know, minimal damage to their home, and and they were far enough inland so that they didn't experience a storm surge. But uh, we were all worried for them for a while. That's good. Yeah, I, and I have family there too as well. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, it's it, it's a big concern. I mean, and we're we're not. You know, like we've had this conversation in the past. Where this isn't. You know, it, it may be one of the worst ones, but it's certainly not going to be one of the last ones. We're going to be facing these type of weather related catastrophes, probably ramping up more and more just based on what's going on on the planet. So, yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, uh, our thoughts are going out to everybody down in Florida who are dealing with, you know, these issues. So um, so the story, I guess, I guess like our, our our big feature that we you know wanted to discuss with you today is, of course, uh, Legionella. Um, and, uh, you know, for those of you in the audience that may not know this, David's actually one of the uh, one of the uh, principal authors of the uh, new AI, AIHA uh, uh, guideline, right? Recognition, Evaluation and Control of Legionella. Um, he was involved in that uh, for a long time. Dave, Dave's been involved in, in Legionella issues for a very long time. Certainly one, one of the, the nation's experts on this topic. So... On, on that note, on that note, <laughs> on that note, um, you know, this is this is something more than uh, an event that just happened in uh, what 1976 in Philadelphia, right at a convention. Well, you know, waterborne pathogens really started public health. Um, you know, cholera and typhoid. Um, you know, the, you think about public health started with John Snow removing a a pump handle to try to reduce the incidence of cholera. Um, so, you know, bacteria, viruses, uh, and water have, have really been around for a, a long time and continue to be a big problem in both, uh, you know, the United States and, and uh, developing countries around the world. So, you know, we, we've, we've certainly improved things and changed things by the way we, uh, treated water, um, and, and establishing some regulatory framework and rules and laws in the United States. But um, each time we go to fix one thing, we tend to create another unintended adverse effect. And so there's always a push pull on that, uh, on that uh, continuum. So uh, the AIHA uh, Legionella guide came out, uh, well, officially it came out back in June, correct? It was well, the, the, the first um, edition, was published in um, May of 2015, and <clears throat> after, you know that that was that met with a, a lot of success, and, and and a lot of people have used that uh, to help establish frameworks and to um, evaluate buildings for sources and contaminant, uh, you know, and, and to help control that. Mm -hmm. um, 
since 2015, we got to 2018, and a lot had happened in those in those intervening three years. Um, ASHRAE's uh, standard 188 had been released. Uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services, uh, had um, had been released. So some mandates requiring water monitoring for waterborne pathogens, control of it in healthcare settings and long-term care facilities. Uh, New York City outbreak in 2015, uh, regulations in New York State, New York City that came out of that. I mean, it's just been one after another. Mm -hmm. uh, case rates uh, increased uh, up until 2018 to almost 10,000 cases per year. So, um, you know, we, the authors of the guideline felt that it was time for an update. And, um, you know, with uh, how easy things were during the pandemic, um, we, we took, the, took the time and actually did an update of the guideline, which um, now the second edition has been published in and is available now uh, and was released uh, just, to, I think, here in April or June. I, I forget the, the month it was finally finished, but yeah, just this year. So it's much more robust. It went from, I think, 37 pages to well over 100 pages um, in in uh, in size, and we've um, really taken some steps forward on on tables and interpretive criteria and guidelines for users as well. So, uh, where where can people get copies of this uh, through AIHA, right through their website? Exactly, it's available. Um, I, I think for a modest amount at the uh, AIHA uh, bookstore. And we, we recommend that people actually, um, if they purchase this, uh, to, to also um, get the uh, Legionella framework body of knowledge document. Um, that, that is for free. You do have to register, but um, it's available for free. And it lays out the, the competencies, the knowledge, skills, and abilities that people should possess and be able to demonstrate uh, in order to... Uh, successfully carry out uh, assessments, uh, monitoring and testing for Legionella. So that that leads you know to a nice segue here is what are the core competencies and currently people that do testing and, and, and do some of the remediation work for Legionella, you know, what are, what are the qualifications required, you know, and how qualified are these individuals and, you know, yeah. Buyer beware. <laughs> Buyer beware. Um, Right now, there is no, um, actually, there's, there's no credential in the United States. There are credentials in uh, Great Britain and some of the Commonwealth countries, um, but uh, within the United States, uh, there, there's no, you know, if, you're, uh, if you have an engineering degree or a certified industrial hygienist, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have the background, experience, knowledge, education, training, uh, expertise in order to uh, design a sampling strategy to evaluate sources to successfully and effectively uh, collect samples and measurements so that you can make sense of the information. Uh, frankly, it is um, it is buyer beware. Um, and we see uh, I, I get involved in quite a few litigation cases looking back at, uh, you know, the first responder, the first people who showed up on site. And, and they're frankly often just local and figured they could figure it out on the way. So um, that's part of the reason that we developed the uh, Legionella frame, uh, technical framework or body of knowledge so that professionals who want to put themselves out there as that expert can see how to improve their knowledge and what they need 
need to know and and how they need to take care of that. Um, for those who do the remediation or hyperchlorination and disinfection, it varies per state. Some have to be some states require you to be, uh, you know, a, a, a water. Uh, uh, you know, they have various licenses, but essentially to be uh, someone who works on uh, water systems. Some of them are HVAC contractors who would work on cooling towers. Some, um, like in Florida, really technically, if you're applying a pesticide or a biocide to water systems, you need to have a, a pesticide license. So, you know, you, you wouldn't think about calling the local, you know, uh, termite company to come treat your water, but that may be who has to do it. So it is um, inconsistent at best um, and uh, just a hot mess at worst and as, as far as finding who can do the work. And so, so these recommendations. This is by AIHA, right? The, as far as recommendations for the the body of knowledge, you you, sh, you know would make that would make sense for somebody to be a qualified professional on either side of it, right? The consulting, the testing, or the actual treatment. Yes. Uh, but but currently, there's not there's still no real unified requirements anywhere in this country. Like you said, you've got some state by state and maybe locale licensing, but. Um, so, and do you, do you see that on the horizon that they'll actually, is, is there a push here anyway? You I know, think eventually someone, some organization will establish a credential. <clears throat> um, I think it's ASSE has established something along with IAPMO, which is a, a, a plumbing and mechanical organization, um, that is, has a, I think a two or three day training course and some, uh, basic guidelines on how to assess, water sources and collect samples um, that really they call it a professional certification, but it, it, it it's not not to demean it at all, but it, it's really more of a technician level, uh, someone who is capable and competent to you know, collect a sample and, and, and not mess it up, send it to a laboratory that's qualified um, and then to receive the results and how to design a sampling strategy and interpret the results. That's really a higher level of, of uh, training and education and background um, that I, I don't think there's any any current credential out there or organization offering a, a credential for that. And, and that's kind of a problem because this is uh, to, to properly, like you said, to design that that uh, strategy on how you're going to do it. Uh, a lot more complicated than, for example, somebody walking in and maybe taking an air sample for asbestos or taking, you know, a, a spore trap for mold. You know, although there's strategies involved with all that, but I think this is a much more complex complex well, issue. Well, right? it's wholly unregulated, which, right. in, yeah. you know, to, to begin with, makes it more complicated. There's no there's no um, clear standards or risk based criteria to say you're you're above or below a certain threshold. Uh, even more concerning right now is is the uh, long-term treatment. So in the event that you do either have an outbreak or you find you have to control Legionella within a building's water system. And when, we say, when I say Legionella, it's not just Legionella. Often there are many other waterborne pathogens that come along with this. So we often use Legionella as a, uh, as a shorthand. But if you've got bacteria or viruses in your water that can make people sick, you need to do something about it. And what we're finding is that um, if a building or a facility, a hospital, a school, a university, uh, a, uh, an apartment complex, uh, an office building, if they need to add supplemental treatment to their water because they're not getting enough from the city or the municipal water supply, 
they strictly fall under the Safe Drinking Water Act, um, the, the US EPA Safe Drinking Water Act. And that triggers a whole series of regulatory requirements that are uh, frankly often contradictory and um, unrelated, but you still have to apply, comply with them. They're inconsistently applied from state to state. So what, um, what New York, California, and Georgia require are entirely different, even though they, in theory, are all complying with the same federal law. So each state primacy agency um, implements it and interprets the, the, uh, the implementation entirely differently. So for the business owners and the operators and consultants, uh, you know, you do this enough times and you pull your hair out just like I did. <laughs> I, 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 and, you know, uh, full disclosure, I knew Dr. David Krause while he still had hair. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you when you were a young man. I'm well, still young. a young man, relatively speaking. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, well, compared to me, yeah. I mean, compared to me, you're a young guy. I mean, it's like, you know, but. Uh, so, you know, that that's what's really strange in this is that we, we've got these regulatory frameworks that are being blindly applied. Mm-hmm. Almost misapplied to and, and why? Why why is that? I mean, because you know, you, you you've cited well, that before on frankly, previous shows. The Safe Drinking Water Act was written and brought and, and and implemented into the law before we even knew Legionella pneumophila even existed. 1974 is the is the, is the date of the uh, um, implementation of the Safe Drinking Water Act. And we didn't even know Legionella existed until really 1976. Call it 76, 77, when, when, when the uh, outbreak was being investigated at the, at the Bellevue Stratford in, in Philadelphia. So, you know, the world has surpassed, the events have surpassed and um, overtaken the realities of the laws and the statutes, and the statutes haven't successfully changed. They haven't kept up with science or the realities of our times. So we're often taking a square peg and trying to fit it into a round hole, and it's 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 frustrating. It's a waste of time and effort. And um, you know, my biggest uh, uh, complaint about it is that you have to implement re- you know regulatory requirements that are totally irrelevant to yeah. what you're trying to do. They make you test for things that that weren't the problem, but don't require you to test for the organism that you were trying to control with the treatment system. So it's uh, it, it's a bit uh, confounding, and and Legionella contamination in our in in our water systems, right? Um, that's prevalent, a lot more prevalent than I think people realize, right? And you know, and the subsequent uh, outbreaks of Legionnaires' disease happen a lot more than we think, too, right? I mean, than the general public probably realizes. CDC, well, I think, estimates what five to twenty thousand a year, but they know they're undercounting that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they they've been undercounting it for years, and they've been using a. Uh, a odd estimate of the actual numbers and, and misapplying that for a while as well. So, um, yeah, the, I guess the most uh, recent thing is that the National Academies of Science in 2019, um, they really look at, looked at this with a, with a committee and, and they estimated that the true numbers, the actual numbers are probably closer between 52 and 70,000 cases per year. And and those uh, the percentage of death of those cases is fairly high, right? This is like a ten to twenty percent mortality rate, ish. Um, yeah, for for um, 
what we call community acquired cases where you have outbreaks or cases that occur not in healthcare systems. Um, uh, we consider that, that uh, uh, fatality rates around 10%, one in 10. And then uh, for those people who contracted either in nursing homes or in hospitals, the, uh, the fatality rates about one in four, so about 25%. Wow. So, so you know, this is a, a very significant issue here we're talking about. If you catch it, yes, it's a very significant issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's underdiagnosed. And um, there's a lot of efforts uh, that have been brought forward to try to take care of this and, and do better and improve it. I think the CMS um, mandate in 2017 um, is, is one of those efforts, yet it was uh, kind of pushed out without any notice, warning, um, guidance on how to successfully implement it. And it's taken a lot of facilities by, uh, by surprise. And um, frankly, many don't implement it, or if they implement it, it's pro forma. It's a it's a paper drill, mm-hmm. and they're just often whistling past the graveyard. And why is it underdiagnosed? I mean, you know, in your opinion, why why are we why don't we really have accurate numbers? A lot of the problems that we've seen with uh, Legionnaires' disease and how public health has dealt with it are the exact same that we then saw in a larger scale with COVID. So. Um, you know, somebody gets pneumonia, you have to do a specific test in order to determine if they had COVID, right? So same thing with Legionnaires. If somebody has pneumonia, you have to, the the physician has to order a specific test to determine if they have pneumonia caused by Legionnaires disease. So most of the time they just treat them and, you know, uh, just with whatever drugs they think were going to work and hope for the best. Most of the time it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then they often start looking at legionnaires. Um, so that's one of the big things is, is that public health doesn't have control over the um, clinicians who are collecting those, uh, you know, ordering those tests. And again, you're not going to see these clusters, right, from an epidemiological standpoint, unless they're all reported to maybe the same medical facility, right? Because there's not there's not good tracking from point you know from all the different points where somebody could be seen, right? It seems like well, when most of the incidences that come up, that, you know, that you're aware of that you know make public, uh, you know, publicly or you're aware of, usually or something that happens in a cluster that's identifiable. Ninety six percent of cases that are reported every year are deemed to not be part of an outbreak. <laughs> oh boy. So, you know, to tie them together as, a, as an outbreak, it really has to be obvious and in, in your face as an epidemiologist. Uh, Legionnaires disease was uh, established as a nationally notifiable disease in 1977. It's been that way ever since. It's a fairly loose framework in which there's a lot of ways that cases can not be reported. But there is at least, you know, consistency in the errors. Um, over time. What I did see, though, as, as a public health official is that, you know, what was in Florida, at least, you know, several people back in the uh, early 90s who were responsible for tracking down and monitoring those diseases um, through budget cuts and, and resources and, and, and loss of um, people due to retirement. You know, there's several people became one person to deal with all the Legionnaires disease cases and the reports. Um, uh, within the state of Florida, you know, looking out and working with 67 different counties. 
Um, and then that one person then wasn't just responsible for Legionnaires, but they were responsible for all nationally notifiable diseases. So their workload uh, and, and you know, the resources uh, going towards them uh, just became disproportionate. So I, I suspect that reporting has suffered over time. And then, of course, with COVID, uh, where public health officials and public health agencies in general just were just swamped with everything else. Frankly, Legionnaires' disease uh, fell off the map, was not their highest priority. Mm-hmm. They had many other things to deal with. Uh, people were leaving in droves. So, yeah, um, I suspect our, our reporting um, uh, efforts have uh, suffered with both budget cuts and uh, and deterioration of our public health system in general. So we have, we have an audience uh, question posted, which I'm going to bring up here. Um, can we discuss the inconsistency to hot mass of environmental concerns? What do you see as an end result of all this unregulation or underregulation? I don't know that regulation is going to fix much at this point, other than we'll talk a little bit about the regulation of public water systems and municipal water supplies. Um, that are going to come forward. But, uh, you know, because if you don't start with good water coming into the building, it's tough to make it good and safe quality water within the building. But as far as the um, the regulation within uh, treatment uh, providers and consultants, um, yes, some we do need some level of competency for everyone involved in order to, for that to be successfully done. My concern is that we, we, we want to avoid what's happened with mold licensing and, and regulations throughout the country in which essentially without core competencies, without knowledge, skills, and abilities, or some type of credentialing that is science-based, um, I, I, I fear that you may just basically create a license for which you know, unqualified people can can become you know card carrying consultants. We've certainly done and, that in mold. You know, it, no it, question and that about is it. Exactly. You know, what that, I mean, people. You know, I can speak to our state where if you pass a fifty question multiple choice test that was actually authored by the training provider and proctored by the training provider. Yeah, <laughs> that's your yeah. core competency. You know. Yeah, you you have to start with a foundation, not. St- end with the start with the credential and work your way backwards to a to the to the uh, core foundations of what you need to know so um unfortunately i think we're probably looking at several more years of a bit of a a, a chaotic uh, effort to uh, get our hands wrapped around uh, waterborne pathogen issues um, and control of that but um, the, the marketplace will probably work its way out and um you know, uh, the, the the unfortunate thing is when you have outbreaks of Legionnaires disease, when you have Legionella contamination, people die. Yeah. You can literally start counting the bodies. With mold, it's rare, extremely rare that somebody actually perishes from that or that you can even prove that. But with Legionnaires disease, that's usually where you start. You say we have several, several fatalities and many illnesses and hospitalizations and emergency room visits. Um, guess we better go figure out what's going on. Yeah, so uh, that's the the definition of reactive <laughs> rather than proactive. 
you know. Well, so, so I mean, mean, but how do we make a paradigm shift? Because I and again, you say you believe we're a few years out before we can even maybe get those core competencies established in the way they should be. Now, the AIHA guidance for that is should be very helpful in helping establish that, right? But who, who's establishing it though? I mean, you got you well, got you know, we we actually we figured uh, what was proposed as far, as part of that group who prepared that, and it was a really nice. Um, cross-section of uh, about 50 professionals who um, applied and, and, and participated in this. Um, and I was really proud of the outcome, but the the uh, technical framework, the core competencies, the KSAs for uh, professionals, as well as technicians who would be able to carry out these types of assessments and monitoring and, and oversight, um, I think it's well established. I think we're probably 90, 95% of the way there, what needs to be done. The last little bit would be, you know, uh, unique areas of, of regulatory requirements that may, that, that inevitably will come forward as well. So, you know, that's a good start. Who's going to offer that credential? I don't know. No, none of the, you know, uh, professional organizations that I'm aware of are, are doing that right now outside of IATMO. And that's, again, a very, narrow tailored aspect it's not all encompassing so uh or asse uh is offering that but yeah once you get that established i think you'll have a better chance of getting a, a cadre of of people who can do that the, those types of assessments but you know it, it's kind of funny because you know, you've got water systems in buildings but they are certain they are in almost every case a receiver of water that is coming from the municipal water supply, which already mm -hmm. has an existing technical uh, and regulatory framework mm -hmm. um, under which it's one of the few things we have. It's called the Safe Drinking Water Act. And, 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 and I just as a risk assessor, you know, my, my job for many years was as a toxicologist and state toxicologist doing risk assessments. And we talk about this term safe and. It's one of those things is, is how do you define safe? Because people will certainly get up in front of a thousand of their neighbors and ask you, is it safe to drink this water? Is it safe to breathe this air? Is it safe to eat this food? And how do you define that? Well, you know, actually the Safe Drinking Water Act and the US EPA does define safe water. And when you read that, it, it starts a whole series of questions. First is that definition states, Water that does not contain harmful bacteria or toxic materials or chemicals. Does not contain, doesn't say contains it below a certain level or doesn't contain it so that it causes health effects. So by their own definition, no water is safe, which okay. is, that's insane. Right. You can't, they, that's not an attainable goal, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, then under the Safe Drinking Water Act, they define a contaminant as any physical, chemical, biological, or radiological substance or matter in water. So by its very definition, all water is contaminated. <laughs> okay. I guess only a toxicologist would find that part. Well, well, yeah, um, no, but I, I mean, it, but it seems like absurd. <laughs> you it, know, it, just, it is. Yeah. It is. By the, it, this is verbatim out of their... Out of, their, out of their own definitions of, for the EPAs. It further says, you know, drinking water may reasonably be expected to contain at least small amounts of some contaminants. Some contaminants may be harmful if consumed at certain levels in drinking water. 
okay. But how do you deal with that when you're at, you know, when, when a mother wants to know if it's okay, is it safe to use the water from the tap to make her child's formula? And, and, and safe is, is one of those words. Is it a definable state of being? Yeah, I mean, say the absence that's, that's of risk is, harm? That's like saying, do you have good indoor air quality? Yes. Uh, is it a is it a transient state of being? I'm safe right now, but will I be safe when I walk out the front door? Or is it just a feeling? People feel safe, or they don't feel safe, and people can feel safe when they're truly not, and people can not feel safe when they're as safe as they're ever going to be. So it's, it's, and, it's and would you and would you I mean I I have to I have to pose this question do, do you think that in general our municipal water we provide in this I'm speaking to the United States now is it safe water or I mean because it seems like there's you know Flint Michigan and you're you're, you're seeing these others you know down down in uh, Mississippi the Jackson Mississippi that bit which we can talk about that in a moment but but they're not the isolated cases you know there was there was a, a a study published a, a few years back, or at least a review of information, saying that Flint wasn't even in the top worst water systems, uh, municipal water systems in the United States. There's like 2,200 systems that they believe are worse than Flint. How is that? What? <laughs> so, so I ask again, are, are we? do we have safe water? Well, if you define safe under the Safe Drinking Water Act, sure. We're, it's expected and defined as being as, as something that contains some level of contaminants. And, and, the, and the irony is that we know there are things in the water that are not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act that still pose a health risk. Um, they have a list called the Contaminant Candidate List. And the latest one, the, the CCL5, under the Safe Drinking Water Act includes 70 different toxic chemicals and pesticides, 23 disinfectant byproducts, and 12 microbial pathogens, including Legionella and Megleria fowleri, that are known health hazards that are in municipal drinking water, but are not currently regulated. And again, I think I think we all labor under this pretense that you know, that our water, you know, there, there are regulations in place that are being enforced and being, you know, that our water is for the most part safe and that these, these Flint, Michigan, uh, Jackson, Mississippi situations are the outliers, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Right. You know, I think you often have to look at it as, as, as relatively safe or it's safer mm -hmm. than it used to be. Um, you know, when we deal with uh, contaminants, in uh, strictly speaking, uh, we control microbial contaminants such as Legionella, E. coli, uh, norovirus in drinking water by adding other contaminants. We add chlorine, <laughs> monochloramine, copper, silver, you know, uh, w whatever the, the disinfectant is. And by its own definition, those disinfectants are a chemical that's in water. Right. I mean, it's it's ad, it's additive chemistry. So, yeah, yeah, it's an additive approach to try to fix a problem. Uh, unfortunately, we find that that often creates another problem. And so we're often trading that short term acute risk of bacterial disease with 
a long-term chronic risk of lead poisoning, arsenic poisoning, um, or uh, increased cancer risk from those efforts to address the, the short-term risk. So it's a bit of a conundrum and will we'll get you, um, uh, give you a good headache if you try to, to work through it many times. So we have so we have another question from the audience. We want to bring this up. Are you doing any work with uh, PFAS? Yeah, PFAS. Um, yeah. Well, um, that's another one. Something that wasn't even recognized as a contaminant until recently, that now has been, uh, as far as its uh, health advisory level, which is non-regulatory so far. Um, but PFAS uh, chemicals are those related to Teflon, Scotchgard. Um, uh, flame retardants uh, or flame, uh, you know, firefighting equi equipment and homes that have worked their way into the water system and our current water treatment technologies don't really remove it. Uh, these are chemicals, they, they're often referred to as forever chemicals because they just travel through the water system, accumulate in people's bodies and blood. And you can find it in every animal, every creature, every person, and just about every, you know, drop of water around the world right they've been identified as miles deep in the ocean i mean yeah yeah they're, I mean, they're hitting they're hitting everywhere in the ecosystem on the planet uh it, it's 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 worked its way everywhere the, the the question on the health effects is still i would say unsettled science there's there's some concerns and some data suggesting some long-term health effects uh it'll it, I, I would i would certainly reserve uh opinions on that for quite a while uh, just because it's there, because it stays there, does that mean it's going to cause these issues? And, and what are the, the, the real lifelong risks for that? Um, but frankly, it's unavoidable, unavoidable at this point. Now, there's some areas that are heavily contaminated where people are, you know, their le the levels in their body, in their body are, are extremely high. Um, so they're, you know, the dose makes the poison. So that's always the case. But so far, the EPA has, the, they've recently released values in the parts per trillion, which are frankly, practically... For the most part, even un unmeasurable. So they've set exposure limits or, or, or you know, source concentrations that would say it's contaminated at levels that are at or below our ability to even detect it. So that's why I say the Safe Drinking Water Act is is it's kind of like my old '66 uh, Ford. It's 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 there. It's uh, it's old. It's behind the times. Uh, it definitely desperately needs restoration and updating. Um, and that process is, uh, is slow and laborious. Um, and I don't know that building owners and operators and people who rely upon abundant, safe, clean, clear, reliable water can wait for that to be fixed and brought up to modern standards. And beyond that, to be able to fix our water infrastructure, our water treatment mm -hmm. plants, our water distribution systems, they are... Um, for the most part, in a horrible shape. We can see the potholes in the roads. We can see the bridges falling down. Well, you know, we even still drive underneath them and drive on them when a, in a bridge that uh, you know is showing um, severe degradation. If people could see the inside of the water lines that they received their drinking water from, there would be a public outcry. And that's another point this, you know, that I guess we should get into because we talked about it in pre-show, um, you know, the, the, some of the treatments, the additive chemical treatments that we're doing 
are in in and of themselves like the chlorination is potentially destructive to the plumbing inside the built you know the, the actual infrastructure of of our water infrastructure within buildings yeah yeah all right so uh beginning in 1908 jersey city new jersey began regularly chlorinating its um city water and that resulted in a dramatic decrease in cholera and other infectious diseases that has continued to today. However, uh, chlorine and other uh, oxidant chemicals that are often used to treat that city water um, or the municipal water is, is also corrosive. Uh, it creates uh, disinfectant byproducts that are carcinogenic. Um, and, you know, taking that technology and applying it directly to buildings uh, when we need to treat building water systems may not be the smartest thing. I think we need to think that through a little bit more and um, and realize that the adverse outcomes and that buildings uh, are not just many water systems. They are unique. They are different. They're uh, you know vastly different in, in how they're operated. Uh, that we're heating that water, that recirculating that water, storing that water, uh, using it in ways that you know, in 1908 and in 1974, we never even considered, sure. um, you know, the water pick wasn't around back then. And, you know, breathing in water actually is a, can be a greater risk than drinking it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we, we, we've got a lot of uh, inconsistencies and, um, you know, often the regulatory framework um, and the regulators in general and public health officials in general will tend to use the rules they have and try to fit them into some cubbyhole rather than saying this just doesn't apply. Let's come up with an entirely different framework or roadmap to begin with. And, uh, and I, I think we're, we're going to kind of be stuck with that. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's efforts to try to still tweak, adjust the current requirements and frameworks for, you know, uh, individuals who um, maintain and operate water treatment systems. Mm -hmm. Right now, the regulations really say that someone who, who operates a water treatment system in a building has to be trained and certified to operate a water treatment system for a city or municipality. Well, their training and their education and their experience has, frankly, nothing to do with what goes on inside of a building. Sure. I mean, because like you mentioned earlier there in, in uh, pre-show they're distributing you know uh, municipalities it's one directional they're, they're you know or, well i mean they were getting wastewater return but i mean as far as the supply of potable water that's going one way they're not cycling they're they're just moving it and dumping it yeah basically. yeah and and the treatment and the and the regulatory and the monitoring requirements are vastly uh easier than in a in a building where you may have you know the surface to volume ratio is 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 huge compared to what you have in a in a city or your, a distribution, a plumbing distribution system. So, you know, uh, there, there are certainly efforts under AWWA, AASHTO, and um, I believe uh, ESPRI that are looking at that as a, um, you know, maybe there should be either a change to or an addition to the certifications uh, for water treatment, uh, uh, treatment operators, treatment system operators under public water systems to have either additional skills or uh, a different certification altogether uh, in order to be able to operate building water systems. And, and I think it's, it's frustrating and um, we shouldn't have to do it, but I think we're, uh, you know, we're, 
we're finding ourselves that we will need to treat individual building water systems in order to maintain um, good building water quality, whether we want to or not. Um, where we have outbreaks, where we have obvious problems that just really stand out, that that has to happen. And I think as we move forward, especially with efforts to fix and repair and upgrade our, our, our water systems across America, even while we're doing that, that may take 10 or 20 years. Yeah, this is a that. monumental task. I think, like, for example, like uh, Manhattan, New York City. Yeah. I mean, I, I would not want to be. Is, that stuff's hundreds of years old and it's buried under literally, you know, tens, tens, uh, you know, maybe even hundreds of feet deep in the ground under structure and, you know, just the way it's built up. And that's probably the case with many of the older uh, municipalities in the country, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they say in Atlanta, there's, they, they come across even, you know, still wooden pipes and uh, they're still part of the uh, water distribution system. Um, Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. So, but they chlorinate the tar out of that water for sure. Um, New Orleans, uh, you know, uh, they, 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 they treat their water well, surprisingly, you know, there's a lot of things that, that don't go well in New Orleans or water treatment. Um, I, I, I'm, I was shocked with to see how, how much chemistry ends up at the buildings, but they'll tell you that they think maybe half of the water that they treat actually makes it to a water meter. Because they're lost. Because they're leaking that much. And I, I actually got to observe some of this during some construction down in the uh, French Quarter. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you could hear it running out into the, you know, into the surface waters, which run their way right back to the Mississippi. But see, and that, that raises is another issue. I mean, that's another issue outside of what we're speaking about. But the fact that we're, you know, we are globally starting to lose our, you know, our water supplies, you know, it, drinkable water i mean look at the colorado river basin you know it's down to what 25 percent of what you know they'd like to see the levels at you know so don't I, I, wasting water doesn't seem like a really good idea right now well i i, I think you know the the importance of safe abundant and quality water escapes a lot of people it's it's kind of the the magic that goes into making a civilization or the city we often don't realize that uh, without abundant and safe and quality water uh, we can't build our homes. You know, a ton of cement consumes over 1,300 gallons of water. Uh, maintaining and cleaning a, a hygienic environment. Mississippi, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, they closed schools because they couldn't flush toilets, couldn't wash hands. Um, uh, hospitals were threatened because they couldn't um, keep the cooling towers running in order to keep air conditioning within the hospitals operating. Uh, electricity, you've got to have good quality water before you can put it into that that steam turbine engine or you'll destroy that that, that uh, power generation facility uh, you know hospitals and long-term care facilities they don't operate well for very long without a lot of water hygiene drinking showering and, and almost you know almost as important is coffee you know it gets me going every morning and uh, one of the things you'll learn if you if you look into uh, Starbucks is just an example. That's a national um, coffee chain that has just to operate and be at any location, they have to install a standardized um, reverse osmosis three-part filtration system in order just to have the same consistent quality water uh, so that they 
have the same taste, and two, so they don't destroy their actual equipment because creating sure. steam and heating water uh, will rapidly destroy that equipment or make it non-functional. So it, it's an, it, every aspect of our daily lives, um, whether it's the big things or the small things, and water quality and the abundance and availability of water, uh, it, it is a cornerstone of all healthy indoor environments. And it's scary, too. If you take a total dissolved solids meter, TDS meter, and look at what comes off of tap water, just the amount of material that is in that in that water, it, it's well, kind of alarming. I, I, it makes I'm you want to have an RO system at your house, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, if you can afford to put it in everywhere. Right. Um, you know, and that's an area we're actually putting together a, a session or a presentation on, uh, you know, what is in your average as well as your poor water quality, eight ounce glass of water. And I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll bring that to you uh, and have a little, have a little show on that later on. But I think most people, if they, if they saw the laundry list of, of, of chemicals and microbes and uh, pathogens and radionuclides that are, are in that glass of water, uh, it would be, it would be pretty uh, eye opening. Well, especially how we treat our wastewater, right? I mean, you know, because it, there is a cycle, right? I mean, in, in municipalities, water, you know, what's supposed to be safe drinking water is distributed out and then dirty, nasty water, sewage, everything's brought back and it's treated. But they really, don't they just treat mainly for some pathogenic bacteria? They're, they're, I mean, there's all, you know, the chemicals and things that maybe find their way in there, you know, spent pharmaceuticals and every other darn thing that gets in there. There's not an awful lot of removal of that, is there? Pharmaceuticals, there's uh, little to no removal of those and, you know, how those degrade and, 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 and pass through that system uh, where it's been studied. It's not pretty. Um, I, you know, you could argue this, uh, argue uh, the point that wastewater and, you know, sewage treatment is more regulated than the municipal water, uh, the water that we drink. And, uh, you know, it, it, it may it may make few people feel warm and fuzzy and, 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 and feed their green oats that, hey, let's just reuse all of our water. Uh, but until we can treat our municipal water and, and have higher confidence in it, that it's, it is truly safe and healthy and we're, we're, we're not uh, creating additional problems. I think we need to maybe slow a little bit on, you know, recycling and intentionally using uh, uh wastewater. For but, we also, but I mean, again, you look on, on the West here, just the United States, I mean, the fact that we're in, you know, drought mode and, you know, severe drought mode, um, it seems like we have to, we have to expedite the process of finding ways to save water. I mean, cause it's, it, this, this problem seems to be getting progressively worse at, you know, and at a steady pace or actually an escalating yeah. pace. You know, it's like, um, yeah. Water. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the, you know, I'm certainly not a, a prognosticator of, of how we're going to solve these problems. But Oh, you are too. Stop that. You always make predictions. You've made tons of predictions on previous shows. So don't, don't punt here now. It's like, I don't know. I, don't, I, I won't well, allow it. <laughs> my, my prediction, my prediction would certainly be that uh, we have many problems that need to be solved, but we cannot even begin solving them until we acknowledge that we have them. And that's the first step. That's the first step in the uh, in the process, right? Yeah, no, I mean, and certainly, uh, you know, obviously it's paramount, right? Safe, you know, safe water. I mean, however you define safe, I mean, we 
we you don't live without it. Maybe that would be a good start. Is that we actually define it? Defi define, define, yeah, define what we'd like to have. Yes, you know yes, that would be that would be a very good start. And then recognize <laughs> that safe for you may not be safe for me, and what's safe for me may not be safe for another person. So it's not a an extremely useful standard. It's risk. You know, what is the level of risk that you have? What is the level of risk that is uh, present? What are the levels of pathogens or chemicals? What type of risk are we dealing with? And so the, the word safe, uh, while it, it, it may be comforting for somebody to say that, um, isn't extremely useful as a, as a regulatory or, or uh, endpoint for, um, for monitoring of, of, of health risk. Yeah, I mean, I would totally concur with that. Um, and again, we, but we have, you know, there's starting points here. Obviously, we uh, we spoke about the Legionella issue, the 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 ongoing Legionella problem globally, but it's it's much even deeper than that, right? I mean, just basically getting water the way it should be is kind of important. Um, so I, I'm not necessarily sure we're going to have any uh, answers in the uh, immediate future to all this, but. Um, you know, well, thanks to the work, of, but thanks to the work of people like you and you know and your colleagues in the industry. At least you're bringing some of this to the forefront, so we can at least you know we're, talk about we're it. We're trying, and 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 many of the colleagues that I have and uh, on 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 all fronts of this, we're also watching the U.S. EPA six-year review of the uh, Safe Drinking Water Act, um, and that is a and that's again, currently uh, happening. That's, that is cur currently happening. Is they have some committees together and they have some agendas and some abilities to at least see the process um, in which they're reconsidering, um, uh, you know, the disinfectant and disinfectant byproduct rules, uh, actually looking at maybe requiring some testing or monitoring and regulation of Legionella and Pseudomonas. Um, and then also, you know, the, the monitoring of disinfectant byproducts and additional um, byproducts in, in the water. But, you know, a lot of people don't recognize or realize that the implementation of the disinfectant byproduct rule very may well have had an adverse effect and increased the rate of Legionnaires' disease. Certainly, the disinfectant um, uh, byproduct rule stage one and stage two implementations happened coincidentally at points where the rate of Legionnaires' disease jumped dramatically hmm. from year to year. And that has not been. Um, transparently examined. And, and why, why do you I think brought that's this up to, to, to people in the industry, of, it's been a bit of, uh, you can't say that. You don't have enough data to, to, to say that. And, you know, what if it's true? What, you know, <laughs> I think it's worth looking at. It's right, right. I mean, right. you're not you're not saying that it's the case. You're saying this is, you know, something maybe suspect we should look at. Yeah, you reduce the amount of chlorine going into the water, which is what you're relying upon, mm -hmm. and you have more outbreaks of disease, might be worth looking at. <laughs> Could actually have something to do with each other, you know, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it, we've, we've got a long way to go. Uh, it, it, unfortunately, I think is going to be in left to the devices and left in the hands of uh, healthcare facility operators, building owners and operators. Um, and, you know, for the time being, it's not going to get much better because we have water restrictions, which here's another big surprise, 
just about every effort to save water and conserve water, both within buildings and within building water systems and within municipal water systems also increases the risk of pathogens. So, Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. It just keeps getting better. I'm, 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 uh, we're, I've got you over time now, so we we got to we got to wrap yes. up because we did, we did close, and I'm sure you probably have like at least 50 uh, clients that are not really pleased that you're late. But I, I want to mention you'll you'll be back uh, on the Healthy Indoors Global Community sometime next month for an Ask Me Anything. Um, you you agreed to it. <laughs> we we haven't we haven't posted the date yet. So anything. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> I'll get. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Uh, you know. All right. Well, I mean. Anyway, the the AMAs are something that if you are a member of the Healthy Indoors Global Community, um, you you know will have the ability to sign up for those. Uh, you know, actually participate in a live discussion. We we've been linking a Zoom conversation with some of live virtual audience and watching recordings after and being able to comment on it. We just again just finished one yesterday with Jeff May. Um, and if you do want to get those, uh, the best way to get there is become a member of the Healthy Indoors Online Global Community. Uh, the community is actually the community website itself is at uh, global.healthyindoors.com, but healthyindoors.global, which is kind of confusing and reversing, and I, I can't even keep up with this myself, David, but healthyindoors.global will actually show you how to become a member. I mean, if you get those words, just get healthy indoors and then you'd be fine. Not you will problem. find so, it. It's there somewhere. Use the Google machine and we'll get it's it there. There. It's there somewhere. So again, uh, you know, really like to thank our, our guest today, Dr. David Krause. Uh, again, I, and I do believe you're reigning champion for appearances on the Healthy Indoors show, which is a good thing. So uh, again, David, you know, your company is uh, Healthcare Consulting and Contracting 3. Well, it's HC3 is the acronym, Healthcare Consulting and Contracting. Right That's in right. Uh, Tallahassee, Florida. There's your website, yep. hc3.fl. Uh, uh, hc3fl.com. I said it wrong. Um, I didn't put the www's in. That's that's you know it's given. We we that's all so passing. Yeah, we all know. Well, that. thank you for having me today. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity, and and hopefully we've uh, uh, been informative and entertaining today. I, I think we have. And again, we're going to have you back. There's a lot more to talk about. We opened up, we opened up many cans of worms and Pandora's boxes here today. My favorite hobby. It really is. You know, you really are a, a master of chaos. <laughs> well, thanks again, David. Great having you. All right. So um, we will be back again next uh, Thursday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time for the Healthy Indoors live show. Um, join us, you know, join us there, but also go to our websites. Again, global.healthyindoors.com. We'll get you to all the back episodes. That's available publicly. You don't actually even have to be a member of the community to access all the uh, past episodes of the show, as well as all the uh, um, past uh, issues of the Healthy Indoors magazine publication, which we've been doing since 2013, nine years of that now. A lot of that stuff hanging out there. So really good information. We'd like to see you there soon. Um, checking it out, becoming a member of our community, being part of what we're doing. We're, you know, we're looking for all of you to help us make this bigger and better and more informative. So until next week, uh, my name is Bob Krell. Again, I'm uh, the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And uh, stay healthy. Uh, we'll see you soon.